We have just moved through um, the fall. We've moved through the judgment. And today we move into, sorry, the story just keeps getting darker, um, to the first murder. And this is the very familiar story of Cain and Abel. And truly, Cain and Abel are the archetypes of, of um, human, uh, human tension and covetousness and jealousy uh, and violence and the ways that we are never contented with what we have when our eyes are fixed upon what someone else has. Uh, the challenges that we are confronted with when we fail and how we respond when we fail. And there's just so much within this story, but I just want to focus in on a few things um, this morning. And so I'd like us to just go ahead and open up this text. And we're going to consider, first of all, this reality of what we're dealing with here is worship. Um, in Genesis chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 5, we are confronted with what I would refer to as the heart behind the offering. And it says, now Adam knew Eve. To know Eve means that he had sexual relationships with her. That's the, that's the way that they wrote. So subtle, so, um, so polite. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. By the way, I want to just say, all joking aside, I think there's an incredible beauty um, in the sexual ethic of the Bible in that it is described as knowing. It's not just something you do to someone. It's about relationship. And in a, in a society that has diminished the relational component of sex, I think it's a beautiful thing actually that scripture de describes it as, and he knew her. Because that is the essence really of real relationship. Am I known and do I know? And so much of sex in our society isn't about knowing. Um, it's, it's about, I don't even know, much more disturbing things. Uh, taking, conquering, using. Um, but the biblical vision of sexuality in the confines of marriage is that it's about knowing and knowing intimately. So I think it's worth noting that that language is used very purposefully. Even Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may what? know you. Everything in the Christian life, the goal of existence is to know God intimately and to be known by him. Um, and so I love that even around sexual intimacy, that language of relational intimacy is, is the focal point, not the act. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. I want to just point out there's um, a tremendous amount of debate on whether or not she's acknowledging the gift is from God. The language is a little, a little unique, and the, the, the two possible interpretations is, I have now been given the gift of a child from God. The other possible um, interpretation which I lean toward is this is Eve saying, I have become like God, which was the, the um, the very thing that the serpent was tempting her to do and what was at the root of the fall. And I now am a creator. I have, I have a man. Um, and it's interesting, there, the, the motifs are played out. This very similar motifs will continue to be played out is Cain is not the chosen seed by which 
redemption will come to the world. Her statement, this is, this is a, uh, almost uh, the ego, if it's, if it's true, if this interpretation is correct, that Eve is viewing herself as autonomous from God, the consequences that play out in that kind of reality, which is the root of all sin, because sin is essentially us choosing to be our own gods in any given situation. Um, and, and the reason I think that, it's, um, that she means something not right by this statement is because later, after Abel is killed and she has a, a son that is essentially God blessing her with a son to replace Abel, Seth, um, she says, uh, uses a different word. She says, I have received a child from God. Um, and so here she is, she, the word acquired is kind of, it can be translated multiple ways, but it's essentially, she's saying, I'm like God, I have a kid. Um, and I just think the outcome of us playing God is never good, is the point. Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Do you know what the name Abel means? Abel is the same as Hevel. It literally means air or vapor or breath, um, which is a name that almost gives a prophetic meaning to the shortness, the tragic shortness of his very life. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was the tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, what we want to understand here is this is an act of worship. The recognition that everything I have belongs to the God who created me. There is a unique relationship that our first parents and their children had with God, as we'll see in the next verse. God directly talks with Cain. Um, so there is a person-to-person -person relational reality between the creator of the universe and our first parents. Um, what is wrong with Cain's offering? Uh, there has been some... Uh, who have suggested that the issue is that it was a grain offering um, and the reason Abel's was accepted is because it was a blood offering. Uh, but that is actually not accurate because uh, the language that's used for both Cain and Abel's uh, gift is the word offering, um, not sacrifice. And a grain offering is acceptable um, as a first fruit to God if you are a farmer. So the issue is not what is given. The issue seems to be, and what the author wants us to focus in on is, and we see it in um, God's interaction with Cain, it begins to become clear, is that it is an issue of the heart. And I think that for us, we need to understand this, that Jesus himself, when he met with the woman at the well. He gave the most, um, uh, the most full and robust definition we have of worship. Not so much what worship is, but what kind of worship is acceptable. It says, listen, uh, the woman says, listen, you Jews worship, in John chapter 4, you, you Jews worship in Jerusalem, and 
we Samaritans, we, we worship here. So where can I find God? Where's the right place? What, what's the right thing to do? And Jesus, what does he focus in on? Not the place, but he focuses in on is the heart. He says, listen, the Father is looking for true worshipers. By that very statement, true worshipers, he's insinuating that it is possible to enter into what? False worship. Um, now, here's the thing. Everybody worships all the time. So the question isn't, am I worshiping or am I not worshiping? The question is, is what am I worshiping? What is receiving my full allegiance? What am I giving my devotion to? And you know, they say that whatever it is that you think about, that is what you worship. Um, but maybe a better thing is whatever it is that you love the most, that is the revelation of what you worship. But whatever you love the most is also probably what you think about the most. And so I don't think you can separate thoughts, the thought life from um, the heart. The two go hand in hand. What is it that you spend your day meditating upon? What is it that consumes you? When I first fell in love with Darcy, isn't it amazing? When you fall in love with someone, uh, it, it becomes an all-consuming thing. Uh, it's it, the, like all of a sudden, everything that you hated before, like when I lived in Seattle and fell in love with Darce, I could sit at my dumb job at Princess Cruises selling cruises all day long uh, to travel agents in Florida. Um, and it was just like, I, I was like, I don't care because I'm in love. Um, like, I, like there's like a little song in my voice. I even maybe, maybe didn't. I can't remember. It's possible that I even got fired for being on the phone maybe more with my wife than with the people I was supposed to be selling cruises to. But I was selling something, love. <laughs> and she bought it. This in, mine. <laughs> but how it changed the vision of everything. All the things that were horrible for me, mundane, driving in traffic, now it's like, just like a moment just passed by because I'm in love. It's like everything is, is different. And, and I think that this begins to define for us what worship is. The danger of actually romantic love is that it can quickly become an idol. It can quickly become the thing that defines you more than anything. Love is a powerful thing. But agape love, the ability to worship God in spirit and in truth, which is what Jesus said. He said, the Father is looking for true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth, tells us something about worship, right worship. We just sang in that song, free to choose you. I would argue that you are not free to choose him until he's first moved toward you. Every step you take, I love that song because that is a very true song for a follower. But to be born again is, comes out of the drawing of God. Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He's not saying I chose you and rejected everyone else, but what we need to begin, begin to understand is that the choosing begins with God. And what I mean by that is not he chooses some and rejects others. What I mean by that is he chooses to love sinners in their sin. And that is good news. That on your worst day, he is crazy about you. So when we come to what is worship then, is that worship, true worship of God, is not like just falling in love with someone. It requires a different kind of love. 
a love that does not grow naturally in the human heart. Agape love is a foreign flower planted in the soil of our hearts. And it requires, this is why Jesus says, unless you be born again, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says the Father is looking for true worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth, what he's essentially saying, there is a Trinitarian formula to that statement. We worship God by God through God. In other words, the spirit, we need the spirit of God within us. And who is the truth? Jesus. So something relationally is off here with Cain. There is clearly not a reliance or a dependence, and we're not given the details of why, why or where the heart is wrong. We just know that it's wrong and that the offering goes unaccepted. God is not pleased with the offering. But does that mean that God doesn't love Cain? Of course not. And I think for us, we have to ask the question, are we worshiping the Father in spirit and truth? Is our heart... The purity of heart is, is the issue. But let me ask this question. What does it mean to be pure of heart? And we talked about this in great detail when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. But to be pure of heart is not to be perfect. The goal of the Christian life is not sinless perfection. But, it's, but it is dependent faith, total surrender. The goal isn't arriving, it's about knowing. We, when we begin to put the emphasis on what we do for God, the heart quickly can have the wrong motivation because we can, we can believe that we're right with God because of the things we do. But at the end of the day, that is not the litmus test. The litmus test is, do you know the God in whom you worship? Not, what do you do for the God you don't know? That's a big problem. And this is why we put such a huge emphasis upon grace at Door of Hope because grace is the one-way love of God toward us that God chooses to love sinners in their sin but we also need to remember that he is a holy God and he is not content to leave us there he sets us free and now we have the freedom to choose to surrender daily and our surrender to him is our worship this is why I always define worship this way worship begins in submission it is defined by truth. That means by Jesus. It is confined by the scriptures that is pointing us to Jesus. It is expressed. It is, it is um, excuse me, it's, it begins in submission. It's initiated by the spirit. We must be spirit filled. It's defined by truth. That is, it's all about Jesus. It's confined by the word that points to Jesus. And it is ultimately expressed in love. We are not worshipers of Jesus if the outcome is not love. And not just the love of God, as we'll see in this story, but it must be played out in our love for our brother, for our sister, that is, our neighbor. You cannot separate the love of neighbor from the love of God. You cannot say you love God and hate your brother. In fact, 1 John says, if you say that, the love of God is not in you and you lie. And I think what is at stake here is Cain's love, his lack of love for his brother and his hatred um, and jealousy of his brother's acceptance um, blinds him to the fact that, that 
what is really being revealed is the lack of relational love that he has with the living God himself. So there's an issue. The heart behind, um, behind the offering is the issue. Whatever the cause of the rejection, the narrative itself focused our attention primarily on Cain's response. And look at what his response is. He was angry and his countenance fell. Now look what happens. If we consider the heart behind the offering, we have to consider the sin that is behind the door. Um, And I find this so interesting. Look at God's mercy. God doesn't reject Cain in a sense of he just pulls out. No, instead he moves directly into his sin. It doesn't say that God is there having a conversation with Abel. No, he's speaking to the one whose who's offering's been rejected. He's, just, he's trying to say to Cain, listen, I haven't rejected you. I'm just saying your heart's not right, man. Like, are you not paying attention? He says, and the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? Now, this isn't a work hard and you'll be accepted. If you do well, I think is calling us again and again and again. We're seeing if if you actually draw in the very minimal passages that we have even from the New Testament about the story. What does it say in Hebrews about Abel? Why Abel's gift was, was accepted? Because he offered it by faith. So Cain's gift was, was not an act of faith. It was an act of duty that was disconnected from actual proper affections, from proper knowledge. And it's easy to enter into duty as Christians. Um, and this is why Jesus uh, says, says, Martha, why are you so busy with your serving? Mary has chosen the better part to sit at my feet. It's not that he doesn't want us to serve. Uh, but he doesn't want us to choose to serve. He wants us to choose to be servants. And servants of Jesus are ones that are friends with him, intimate with him, which is what, in, which is what inspires the service. It's what moves us into action. It's what causes us to give our offerings to God. It's the heart. I'm in love with you, and that's why I do this. I'm not doing it out of just pure duty. And I, I think that this is um, something I can find. I, there's times where Darcy and I, if we're in a conflict, I think I can get my way out of the conflict by just, by just doing lots of good things. And I, this just happened the other day. I'm like, look at all I've done. She's like, that's not how we're going to connect by you hanging Christmas lights as beautiful as they are. But do finish that before you come in. But we need to connect still as well. <laughs> but she's right. It's easy to fall into the trappings of I'm going to prove something to you what God is asking from us is the same thing we're often asking from each other I just want to be seen I want to be known I want to know that you really love me I'm not looking for perfection what I'm looking for is a purity of heart a single-minded devotion to me that's what God is asking for us that is what it means to be pure of heart not perfect it means to be devoted to in spite of my brokenness, in spite of my mixture, I just lay the whole mess down at the feet of Jesus every day. That's what he's looking for. The offering that Abel offered was an offering by faith. It didn't have to do with the kind of offering he, he offered versus what Cain offered. It had to do with a heart of devotion versus a heart that was motivated by duty rather than love. And I am reading between the lines. All I know is Cain's 
response shows the lack of love. Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Why won't you trust me? Is essentially what he's saying. And if you do not do well, if you continue to live as if you were your own God, if you buy into the lie that your parents bought into when they took the fruit as they were tempted by the serpent and they decided to define for themselves what is right and what is wrong, you're going to be destroyed by it. And look at God warns him. If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Um, some of your translation says sin literally like a, like a tiger. It crouches at the door. It's ready to spring on. I, I think this is so powerful. The personification of sin. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. That sin begets sin. That anger. What are we told in Ephesians? It says... Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give a foothold to what? The devil. So interesting to me because one of the things that came out of the lockdown was Christians getting really angry. And that anger not not dissipating, not softening, but as our country has become more and more polarized as we see as we watched the destruction of our city, as we saw bad policies that allowed more drug addiction and homelessness into our city, as we saw the graffiti and the mobs, and we, as we watched the, the political wars between the left and the right, what it did is it, it's one of the reasons that churches have been cut in half is because people were radicalized during those years. And that radicalization created a massive split and many people began to blame God and their faith for the reason the things are the way they are because they didn't deal with their anger <laughs> they didn't they let the sun go down on their anger and they woke up angry and they didn't find themselves relieved what they found themselves is more infuriated and frustrated and restless in other words they gave a stinking foothold to the devil have we forgotten that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but there are real spiritual powers and principalities at play, and Satan feeds on hatred. A little bit of anger can quickly become hatred. It's amazing to me how many times I've sat in an office with a couple on the verge of divorce who were once madly in love, and now they can't even stand the way the person chews their food. Well, that was an issue for me even in love. It's a bad example. But the, you know what I mean? Like, I'll get in, I'm like, I mean, you guys hate each other. It's like there is like vitriol in the way that you look at each other. But once you were in love, once you stood in an altar and said no to every other man and yes to this man that you now seem to hate. And love and hate can be a very thin line. And what I'm telling you is that Anger unaddressed turns to hatred, and hatred will burn you up, literally, and everyone around you, and in not a good way. It's funny how fire is a picture of revival. <laughs> the flame of love is a beautiful thing that can ignite a whole, a whole city, but the flame of hatred can also ignite a whole city, but it doesn't lead toward communion and union. It leads to destruction and disconnect. Um, and despair and God in his in his mercy 
is trying to give Cain the opportunity. Listen, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Notice the play on words. What does this sound like? Anyone think of what this sounds like? The very word that God speaks to Eve after the fall. Your desire will be for your husband and he will what? Rule over you. This is the conflict. And now there's the same conflict being applied of this is the reality of how sin interacts with, with our humanity. Now here's the point. Is it possible to overcome sin? Here's the question. Can we do it? There's sin that lies behind the door. Now here's the thing. Sin is a part of who we are. It is at the core of our being. That is, we have a tendency to define for ourselves what is right and wrong. We have a tendency to rebel against God's rule. Even as Christians, we will do Christian things in our own strength. <laughs> we try to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit. Um, and that's even more dangerous because we don't see it often as sin. But the pride that can creep into Christian communities is insane. Um, so sin is all around us and it's a part you can't even get out of bed without it being a problem what god is addressing is not all the ways that one can sin what god is addressing is what cain knows it's not your responsibility to try to chase after everything you don't know that you're doing wrong but you should be dealing with the things that you know <laughs> I was just talking with Darcy about this. It's so easy. We, it's so easy to, to fall into the trappings of how good grace is. It is easy to abuse grace. It's also easy to refuse grace to others, which is often what happens when people that abuse it. They abuse it in themselves and refuse it for others. Um, but when grace really owns us, it begins to create in us a desire, an excitement at having victory because Jesus didn't just become sin he is Christus victor he is victorious over sin death and the dominions of darkness and our victory over sin lies in our dependence upon the one who is sinless it's not that we're going to stop sinning on this side of eternity but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't enter into the battle and the way that we enter into the battle is not by fighting this or that sin it's by clinging to jesus who is victorious over it i think that's the problem is like it's like okay i'm going to stop smoking by not thinking about smoking no that's you replace it with something else and i think there are things that god shows us and he keeps asking of us questions and i know there are areas in my life i just can feel it there's things josh do you need to be doing this right now good things in my life can quickly become sinful things because they become distractions from the main things I ought to be doing. So don't think that sin is just the really bad things that people do in alleys. It's not just, you know, kill, like, well, I didn't kill my brother, so praise God, I'm, I'm in the clear. That's the, the point is this, is that sin is always crouching at the door. It's always ready to pounce. And the two, the two punch of Satan is this. It, temptation, it's not that big of a deal. Just do it you'll be forgiven and then the second punch is he'll never forgive you for that he'll never forgive that it's just guilt temptation and then guilt and condemnation 
And God is giving Cain, listen, I've told you what the problem is. Now cling to me. Turn to me. Don't you see what is going to happen if you do not repent of your anger? Some of you need to repent of your anger. You keep going to bed with the anger intact. And I'm telling you, there is nothing worse than when Christians become Satan's tools. And don't think it's not possible, it is. I'm not talking about possession, I'm talking about influence. If we allow anger to go unchecked, we are literally allowing ourselves to come under the influence of the dominions of darkness. And that, that has no place in the kingdom of light. So pray, Lord, show me, help me release that if that is your problem because he loves you and he wants to help you. Well, let's look what happens. Genesis chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And there it is, the first murder of Scripture. And this is the very thing that was going to come out of the fall is death. And death um, and violence have been a part of human history. These are the great archetypes the ways that we can hurt and kill each other. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And here Cain reveals the problem of his heart. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I want you guys to know that the answer to that question, whether you like it or not, is yes. Yes, you are. We are responsible for one another. Sin is growing increasingly collective. We cannot escape the brokenness of this world. And we are called to be in this world, but we also are called to learn how to evade its systems. And we can't get through it with our hands clean. We can't just cut off humanity to avoid being tinged by everyone else's sin. Because wherever you are, sin is right there with you. And this is why we need one another to confess our freedom lies in our confession. Our freedom lies in repenting of our anger before it turns to violence. You see, God gave Cain an opportunity to, to short circuit that anger and turn back to a right understanding. It's okay if we make a mistake. It's okay if we have an offering that isn't accepted by God. The question isn't, is everything I do accepted by God? The question is, is what will you do when it's not accepted? How do you make right the things that you've done wrong? I remember being confronted with this very question when I was living in California and was a pastor and I was new and the pastor was confessing and confiding in me things that I knew were deeply problematic in regards to his relationship with his wife. And I didn't know how to address it. I didn't know how to deal with it. I was too young in the faith. And so I did the worst thing you can do, which is tell others about it without actually, without any goal of fixing it. I just, I just criticized him behind his back and he's my boss. I don't like how he's treating his wife. I think it's bad. I think it verges on abuse. That's some pretty serious accusations to pass against the lead pastor of a 5,000 member church. And did it bite me? Oh, it bit me so good, so good. Uh, I came, it came to the point where I finally said, I'm gonna quit, I can't work for you anymore. Um, uh, and then I realized that the Lord had not released me. I made my own decision to quit the job. I had not been 
given the freedom to leave. And Darcy and I realized that I had made a horrible mistake. So I went back to that pastor and I told him I repented of speaking behind his back. And I asked if I could keep my job. And he said, Josh, you can totally keep your job. But the Sunday night service that you lead, which was growing, it was called Clarity, and it was getting big. He said, the Sunday night service, you have to get up tonight, Sunday night, and you have to tell everyone that you've been proud and you have to step down as the teacher publicly. And then I'm going to give a message on pride and use you as an illustration through the entire sermon as you sit in the front row. He didn't warn me of that part. Um, and that's exactly what happened. My wife and I sat in the front row while he gave a whole message about how proud I was. All the while I knew that his marriage was in deep danger, but that's how I handled it was not godly. And I actually destroyed my ability to actually enter into that issue with any kind of help. And God brought me to my knees. And you know what? It's one of the best things that ever happened to me. So the question is, what do we do with the correction? Do, are we going to get bitter and walk away and be like, I'm over it. I, don't, <laughs> I, can't, I can't do this. Or do we say like, no, I screwed up. And God's corrective hand, he's correcting me because he loves me. And he wants to see real transformation in me. And I didn't even have a vision for Door of Hope yet, but he was preparing me to start a church that would be a million times harder um, than anything I had done up to that point. I needed to go through that kind of breaking. And I needed, and you know what? That church, it did end up blowing up. And all the issues that I saw were real, but it also showed how I handled them. The heart, my heart was not right in how I handled the problems. I could have gone to the board and said, you guys, I'm deeply concerned about this. We need to get them into counseling. Instead, I used it to, to critique him because really secretly I thought I was a better preacher. And that is the problem. That's the heart issue that people can't see on the surface. Um, and what a cool thing when that just is forced into the public's eye. What an amazing gift to just sit there and listen to someone tell the congregation that you've been pastoring that you're super proud and arrogant and then you, you feel like you should every once in a while just look over your shoulder and go it's true it's true it's true <laughs> true 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 um, it, it hurt and I cried a lot um, look what he says what have you done the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. This is the outcome of sin. Is sin dislocates us from community. And it creates a sense of not belonging when it goes unconfessed, when sin remains secretive, when we allow the violence in our hearts. Because remember what Jesus said, you've heard it said you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. I tell you whoever is angry with his brother, not, that's it, no contingency. It doesn't even matter if they deserve your anger. I tell you whoever is angry with their brother is in danger of judgment. And whoever says to their brother, you fool, is in danger of hellfire. In other words, we are all murderers, <laughs> is what Jesus is saying, and this is why we must cast ourselves in dependence upon the one who is true, who is pure, who is real love, 
and who is the embodiment of forgiveness. Notice the ground sucks up the blood that is shed and now it will not yield to the murderer. Cain's judgment is that he becomes a man dislocated from humanity and from God himself. And look what happens. And this is the final thing where I want us to close. And it's the question that I have for us is do you believe that Cain here is complaining or do you think he's confessing? And I'm not totally sure, but what I will say is God's mercy is, is all through this. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. I think this is an honest statement. I can't, I can't handle this punishment. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. He's feeling now the fear that his sin is going to cause a disconnect from God himself. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain. This is not a curse, by the way. The mark is actually a mark of protection. God, in his kindness, chooses to protect Cain, the murderer. He chooses to protect him from receiving the same thing he did. Why does he do that? Well, I could just simply ask the question, why does he save any of us? Because it's his nature to love. Because on our worst day, he's crazy about us. And I don't think for a second he stops loving Cain. But I do believe that Cain's, Cain's movement away, there, for me, this may be a confession and there may be an element of repentance. And Cain goes on to build a city and some have connected that to the Deuteronomy 28, the cities of refuge. But... The city that Cain builds is, off, is a city where the violence actually begins to manifold because the cities become a representation of what man can do apart from God. And it says here, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Literally, Nod means wandering. It's the land of nowhere. It's the land without home. It's the land of restlessness. It's the land... Of, it's the land of, of um, relational loss or, or almost a, a, a prototype, if you will, of what hell is. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the destruction or the impossibility of relationship with God. And I think that this is the nature of sin, is sin destroys relationship. It destroys relationship with God, it destroys relationship with others, and ultimately it will impact your relationship with yourself. But heaven, which is Jesus himself at the center of our, of our existence, is a place where relationship is fully restored. You see, the heart of the matter is this, is Cain didn't know the one who loved him. And in not knowing the one who loved him, he was incapable of loving the ones he was supposed to be caring for. And instead of loving his brother, he killed him. And I think that this is what sin does. It may not turn you into a literal murderer, but I have met plenty of people that have never physically killed anyone but kill everyone they meet every day because their minds are so bitter and they have so much vitriol because of the ways they feel like they've been let down in life. 
You see, Cain's focus is immediately what he can bear, but he isn't even talking about what he has caused and the pain that he has caused his family. And I think real repentance moves us out of self and back to Jesus and reorients our eyes and our minds toward the other. Real worship, our offerings to God, should lead to an ever-deepening relationship with one another. We can't do violence to one another, friends. And we can do it in our minds just as easily as we can do it with our hands, maybe easier. I pray the Door of Hope is a place where people know the, the love of God because they sense it in our love for one another. We are our brother's keepers. Jesus loves you. He is pursuing us even when we blow it. The question, will we respond in humility or we allow bitterness to cause us to run further away? Don't enter into the land of wandering, of homelessness, of restlessness. Find your rest in Jesus today. Amen?